There's somebody who operates in the conference space who bought, his wife bought him a courtesy title. American woman, she bought it for about a hundred pounds. And it, it, what's it was the guy who runs Adweek? Okay, yeah, Lord Lord Schenker, isn't it? Lord Schenker, right? Well, the words there of the grandee of advertising himself, Sir Martin Sorrell, talking about my guest today, none other than his lordship, the Lord Matt Schechner. Now, this is a story of a modern day P.T. Barnum, the greatest showman with a million dreams for the creative industries. From New York to London, via Tokyo, Sydney, Mexico City, and Johannesburg, with Advertising Weeks, he's developed a global stage unlike any other. And I'm Michael Heyman, and you're listening to Changemakers, the podcast from Seven Hills, where we hear from inspirational people with a passion to make a difference. So to tell us more about putting the show into show business, Matt, welcome to Changemakers. Great to be with you, Michael. It's a real privilege. Uh, lovely to have you on the show, not least because I love the wiretap on on, uh, on Sir Martin. T- tell us all about it. He was he was questioning the, the nobility of, of the peerage, I see. Uh, you know, he never misses an opportunity to uh, bring me back down to earth in his inevitably acerbic and cutting fashion. But we we love having him on stage, and uh, he's been great to us over the years. No, I mean, I have to say, I mean, the Lord Shackner is a legend in the creative industries. And I think it's all part of your unique personality. And I read somewhere when you were asked to describe yourself, you said, if I was a dog, I wouldn't be a pure breed. I'd be the one that somebody had found and no one knows what he is. We'd call it a mutt. Tell us about the mutt and the Lord. Tell us about that personality. Well, listen, I've been working since I'm 12 years old. So my dad was in the garment business. My mom didn't work um, until I was in my teens. Then she went back and worked for the Board of Education. Uh, at Long Island City High School, not too far from where I grew up. And, uh, you know, my grandfather, who was probably the most influential person uh, in my family, my son is named after him. My son, Benny, is named after uh, my grandfather, Bernard, but everyone called him Ben. Um, He was a house painter and came through Ellis Island, is one of the 15 million or so immigrants who came to this country uh, through Ellis Island. And uh, I'm not sure where it all comes from, Michael, but I've always just had a, you know, pretty strong work ethic and definitely self-motivated. So nobody said, go out and do this, go out and do that. You know, when we, jumping ahead, when we expanded from New York to London in 2013, you know, from 2004 to 2012, Advertising Week was only in New York. Mm. Uh, and nobody said, you know, do that. We just saw an opportunity and, you know, have continued to do that. But I think metaphorically, um, you know, I've always been that sort of wired that way. But when I, when I think of you and I think about, you know, I mentioned the PT Barnum, um, in the intro in terms of, I mean, and you said on record, I know how to do showbiz, but I also see you as, as the New Yorker, the quintessential New Yorker, the big city. I mean, it does the Alice Island bit. I mean, you know, that whole kind of thing about, Bring me your poor, your your huddled masses yearning to be free. That's that's the kind of the that was that's the plate that welcomes you there. Is there something about that city that has defined you as a person? Do you think? Well, I, I think very definitely. I actually didn't love that I do showbiz line. I thought that sounded a little arrogant. Evidently, I did say it, so or, or at least was quoted as saying it, which these days are the same thing. Um, I, I think you're onto something there. I think you know I went to public schools, our public. Um, you know, I was the kid who, 
you know, if somebody didn't have money for lunch, you know, used to walk home for lunch when I was, you know, very young. This is, you know, six, seven, eight years old. And I would always take somebody home for lunch with me. Um, and my mom was always very good about stuff like that. Um, but I think there is a certain, uh, there's a word, I don't know if it's used as frequently or in the same context in the UK, but there's a word moxie that mm-hmm. we use here. And I think there is a certain New York moxie, a little bit of, sort of a little bit of, you know, uh, absence of fear, I think. And so that's, my that's case, moxie, is it? The absence of fear. Yeah. And I, and I think it's also, in my case, like a little bit of sort of that blend of absence of fear. And frankly, and I say this in a good way, or intend to say it in a good way, being a little bit naive. Mm. You know, often, you know, people, oh, no, you can't do that, or that'll never work. You know, I remember early on when we went to the UK, Simon Daglish, uh, our first opening gala was at St. Paul's Cathedral. And then we were at St. James's Palace. And I remember we did dinners at Kensington Palace for many years. And I remember uh, Dag said, oh, you'll never get Buckingham Palace. You know, like they were all impressed. Had this American bloke you know, get us into St. Paul's and St. James's. But he said, but you'll never get Abbey Road where we did some. Well, they always say a title, a title helps in these matters, man. Well, this was even pre, this was in the pre-Lordship days. And, uh, and I did get us into Buckingham Palace on the occasion of our fifth anniversary. We had a wonderful lunch there and uh, I invited Dags and we had a laugh about it. But uh, I think it's um, not being smart enough, let's say that, that's a less arrogant way to say it, certainly, to be willing to try things. I mean, you said there, though, when you said uh, about showbiz, you said I didn't want to sound arrogant. But I mean, you are you are somebody that knows how to put on a show. And I, I mean, I've seen Advertising Week, um, certainly in the London perspective, in terms of Advertising Week Europe. I mean, and it is something else. I mean, in terms of in terms of what what kind of what brings that creative mix how you've developed that over the over the sort of years that you've you've sort of you've you've sort of grown advertising week tell us a little bit about what you've sought to do with it well i certainly think it was useful that i had no background in advertising so let's start there and the criteria and the filter that we've always used is you know is this something michael that you and i would think was interesting Mm. You know, you know, would you want to hear from that person? Um, you know, uh, ignorance sometimes can be a great asset. So when we put together, for example, in the States, Nikki Six from Motley Crue, together with the Surgeon General of the United States of America to talk about the opioid crisis, which is an ongoing you know, challenge in America, uh, or when we put Endaba Mandela together with the mayor of Atlanta and T.I. to talk about race in America in the aftermath of the murder of George Floyd, you know, that's sort of unusual combinations of people. The where, mm-hmm. you know, I've never heard anybody say, and they, they run a very good business, but I've never heard anybody say, I can't wait to get to the Sheraton. But it, but is that does that is that the P.T. Barnum in you? Is that the kind of the showman that's pulling together the acts, that's bringing together the big top, if you like, the big tent? Yeah, I mean, I, listen, it's a very kind of you to say that. I, 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 I certainly think the where matters. You know, when we started in London with our Ronnie Scott's Leadership Breakfast series and the very first one we did, we had Alan Rusbridger 
talking about the Snowden case when we mm. started in 2013. So I think the substance of the content certainly mattered, but I think the where mattered just as much. I think so. I th- but, but I think the substance and the ideas, but to bring it to life for like listeners, I mean, you took over Times Square in the first year and you created a parade of the great advertising icons here in London. You took over Southwark Cathedral and you recreated Game of Thrones, even with the bishop phoning you up after listening to you on the radio. I mean, that speaks to a flair, doesn't it? I mean, that, that's about seeing something in terms of something as well as the issue, something that's eye-catching and something that's memorable. Yeah, listen, I th- certainly think we like to have fun. We like to make people smile and we like to make people feel good about the business that they're in. And that doesn't mean we don't talk about challenging issues because we sure as heck do. Um, you know, whether it's diversity and inclusion or race or the opioid crisis or, you know, things that are serious. We were very proud to work actually with Seven Hills with Paul Palman and Carolyn Casey to launch uh, their initiative around encouraging businesses to hire people with disabilities. And, and DNA wise, like we say yes to all that. Mm. So anytime I got, you'll never hear us say, oh no, our thing is you know, diversity, inclusion, that's all we, we will, we'll, we'll tackle anything and everything that needs tackling sustainability. I mean, we worked, Michael, with uh, Ban Ki-moon when he was secretary general of the UN in 2007 and organized a global campaign around the extension of the Kyoto Protocol, which predated the Paris Accords. Mm. So we're certainly not afraid. And I would say not only not afraid, but embrace the opportunity to leverage the Advertising Week platform to focus the lens on those things. But we do like to do it with a little bit of flair and give people a good time. Well, I mean, and to that point, um, obviously alongside this episode is our kind of your lessons of the lockdown. And I, I noted that your new, in your new normal, you said it's a game of reinvention, reimagination, and it's all remarkably invigorating. Give us a sense of what that means for you in, in the day job. Well, you know, you got to create a show in a different environment. So, you know, we're a small business. When we lean back, you know, nobody's going to catch us. We have to stand on our own two feet. And we had a lot of plans for 2020, as did many in the world, which are no longer happening. I mean, I was particularly passionate about our launch in Johannesburg. You know, we had some real A-list people, Tiffany Haddish and Steve Harvey and T.I. And Kevin Hart's been a big part of our planning for Africa and his team. Um, And we were doing a day for a thousand young people in Soweto. So, you know, that transcends business. But you had to move and change quickly. And you sort of have two choices. One is, oh, woe is me. Or the other is, all right, listen, let's get on with it and figure this out. And I think what's exciting is the concept of a strong virtual event and what we are doing for the fall for AW 2020 with no arrogance, just factually. Like, I know what else is out there. You know, we've seen it all from the big stuff, the companies like IBM with their online think event and SAP and their event and a lot of industry stuff and other industries. I am certain that what we are building for the fall for AW 2020, which will run September 29 to October 8th, will be better mm-hmm. than all the other stuff that's out there. That's an exciting challenge to bring to this environment what we've been able to do to the live environment. 
And how could you not be invigorated by that? I'm sure. I mean, I, I was reading um, Serena Williams talking about her sort of um, lessons, and she said, uh, luck has nothing to do with it. And it um, it sort of reminded me a little bit about your early career, because at 23, you became executive director of the Sports Commission for New York. Um, and I love this quote that you said, I got the job because Mayor Cock knew less about sports than any other grown man or woman you've ever met. I mean, I, yeah. I mean, I mean, that's that, that. It sounds to me like you know what you're doing when you put your mind to something and what you're planning for. Yeah, well, listen, I learned early on. I worked, went to school at Emory in Atlanta, and Emory bred professionals. So, without exception, every single one of my friends was uh, a doctor or a lawyer. And I remember sitting with my advisor, a guy named Wayne Sulfridge. I don't know if he's still alive. He was a poli sci teacher, political science, and he said, "Well, what do you want to do?" I think I was a sophomore, second year at university. And he said, well, I'm not very good in science, so I guess I'll be a lawyer. And he said, well, do you want to be a lawyer? And I said, not really. And it was that simple a conversation. I wouldn't quite call it an epiphany, but I was like, okay, well, I better figure out something else I want to do. And I started to intern. I interned at the Atlanta Journal-Constitution very early on. This is before there was cable television. They did something very progressive called the video edition. Mm. And they literally built a studio onto the newsroom floor. And they took different articles and sections of the paper and created television programs. So Linda Sherbert, who wrote their arts and entertainment column called Top Billing, she had a show. There was a show hosted by the lead sports writer, not Furman Bisher, Frank, I forgot his last name, called Sports Thursday. Bill Shipp, the lead political writer, had people in politics. And I worked on that as an intern. And I actually got to do some stuff on camera, uh, but mostly behind the camera. And then I parlayed that into an internship at the Atlanta Chamber of Commerce, just as their vision for sports was emerging. And there was a global happening that shaped the whole sports business, not just in America, but worldwide with the 84 Olympics. The 84 Olympics were the first Los Olympics. An Los to, Angeles. Yeah, exactly. To yeah. turn a profit. And it was all out of um, necessity. What do they say? Necessity is the mother invention. So today we think of the Olympics as this enormous, you know, global business. The IOC, you know, has as much money as, you know, the Swiss government. But back then, the Olympics financially were a lemon. No one wanted the Olympics. So when the 84 Olympics were bid in 1977, the only two cities in the world that wanted them were L.A. and Tehran. <laughs> and, and so the team Peter, led by Peter Uberoth, who I later met, and he was very helpful to me in my career, they created a lot of, between them and Mark McCormick at IMG, they created a lot of what became the modern sports marketing business. And they showed for cities that embracing sports as economic development was good business. Mm. And you saw you still have a lot of the residue of that from London 2012. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that that really was the whole point that it could be a catalyst for other things, right? Regeneration, yeah. all sorts of development. Yeah. What did you do in, in New York with a job like that? What were the sort of what were the key sort of highlights? Well, I, I, I had gotten to know people. My first job at a university, which came from an article that my mom had found in the paper and said, this might be interesting. Um, and that's how I got a lot of my jobs as a young kid was from my mom. Um, I worked for something called the Commission on the Year 2000. And it was a strategic plan for the future of New York. Every area, 
So it was economic development and transportation and education and healthcare and demography and waterfront development. And I wrote the chapters on economic development, transportation, and we did a special report on waterfront development because one of the oddities of New York City is four of the five boroughs or counties in New York uh, that comprise New York City um, are actually islands. The only part of New York City that's attached to America is the Bronx. Everything else is an island. So we have almost 500 miles of coastline. And, and at that point, most of it was old, abandoned, and industrial. So it was a great crash course in how New York works. And I think that has always helped me in my career. That's how I knew how to do something like the Parade of the Icons. Well, so, Parade of the Icons, but also, I mean, we cannot let you leave New York without telling us about the tour to Trump quickly. I mean, you know, I'm sure the current, oh the current president must be thanking you for some of his early great ideas. Uh, tell us very quickly about, about that. Oh, my gosh. So uh, there was a very famous incident in New York where the city – could not make ice at an ice skating rink. And I'm sure you see this in your government where things that business could do easily, government just can't do it, right? Literally couldn't make ice in a skating rink. So Trump's old office in Trump Tower used to overlook Central Park and the Woolman Rink, which is in the 60s, you can see very clearly. So he made this grand gesture to uh, the city. Ed Koch was the mayor who you mentioned earlier, and said, I'll fix it. So they have this press conference at City Hall in the Blue Room. That's where we used to do all the press conferences. And they're shaking hands, public-private partnership. We're going to fix the skating rink. Trump, being who he was, it did get fixed. I'm sure he just looked in what was then the yellow pages. You know, there was no internet then. Who can fix skating rinks? You know, probably somebody out of like Bayonne, New Jersey or something. You know, it was fixed quickly. And that, But Trump, being who he was, he turned goodwill into ill will and said, like, look at these idiots. They couldn't make skating, you know, ice in a skating rink. So along comes this cycling race called the Tour de Trump. It was a partnership between NBC, Jefferson Pilot, this big production company, and um, and Trump Plaza, which was one of the casinos. This is before he went bust in Atlantic City. Donald Trump, you know, he will say now, I got out of Atlantic City years before it went bust. In truth, he went bankrupt years before Atlantic City went bust. And make a long story short, they had Greg LeMond. It was a 16-day stage race called the Tour de Trump. I think it started in Baltimore. It was going to end in Atlantic City. And for the New York City stage, also before he went bankrupt and lost the Plaza Hotel, they wanted the New York City stage to start in front of the Plaza Hotel next to Central Park. So the guys that were doing the race go to City Hall and they say, absolutely not. You just embarrassed us over the skating rink. We're not helping you. So he calls my office. I was in the World Trade Center at the time. And my secretary, Paula, came in and said, Matt, Donald Trump's on the phone. And I'm like, no way. It's one of my idiot friends. This was like 1988, probably, 89. And I didn't even say hello. I pick up the phone and I say, who is this? And it was him. And he says, Matt, this is Donald. I said, yes, Donald. He says, can you come to my office? I need you. So I go to his office and it's exactly what you think it is. I was going to say, what's it look like? It's all- yeah, it's all, it's all magazine covers of him. You know, it was right around the time when his wife, first wife caught him with Marla because who would think it would be a bad idea to bring your girlfriend on a vacation with your family? And, um, and he's telling me about that and, 
He said, look at this airplane. I'm thinking of buying this. What do you think of this? I think we're getting an idea where you might be casting your vote in November, Matt. I mean, that- uh, yeah, no, yeah, well, not, 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 not for him. And uh, though he was very good to me, actually. And um, uh, but then he was then he was just a character. He wasn't like crazy and dangerous. And at any rate, he says, you got to get this race done for me. So I went to City Hall and I said, listen, this is not about him. It's about Greg Lamont. This is something we should do. And I got the deal done. And he was very appreciative. But I mean, it feels like you, you mentioned character there. Um, I mean, your your whole life story, it seems to me, is about exceptional characters that you've come in to play with serendipity or through design. I mean, whether it's running into President Obama and David Cameron playing golf at the Grove or whether yeah. it's coming up with really fun initiatives. I mean, I... I have to tell you, I, I watched the Nathan's Hot Dog Eating Contest on July 4th this year to um, prepare for my, my interview with you. I mean, that's another one um, of your initiatives. Just very quickly, frame that idea. I mean, that is something else to watch. Well, it's really all credit goes to George and Rich Shea. It's really them. But I met George in probably 95, and then the contest was in an alleyway behind the old Nathan's in Coney Island, which is a legendary part of New York and Brooklyn in particular. And you just saw the thing had potential written all over. So this it is just really... eating as many hot dogs as you can in a- Yeah, it's... then it was 12 minutes. There were probably 10 competitors, men only. There were no women yet. Um, you know, sitting, uh, standing behind tables, like what you would put, you know, if you were having a party in your backyard, you know, there was no real production, but there was a ton of media and we went to George and, and Rich, uh, who were running it, and said, listen, I think this thing could be much bigger. Would you let us help you? And it was just because I just thought it was so kitschy and interesting. And today, uh, all these years later, we're still involved. That's where the name of our company, Stillwell Partners, comes from, because the original Nathan's is in Coney Island on the corner of Surf and Stillwell. Is that Avenues. right? Is that, have, you, yeah. have you ever had a go at eating eating those hot dogs yourself? No, Michael, I'm trying to stay alive here. So no, I mean, uh, but I, I do love that. I mean, for listeners, listen not, to this. you watch this and like, th- this is about, what, what's the world record? for? Well, Joey, Joey Chestnut, who is the uh, Michael Jordan of competitive eating, uh, has won, I think now 13 or 14 championships. Competitive um, eating, I love it. Of course, of course, <laughs> it's, a, it's glor- glory of the sport. Uh, Joey, I think the record now is 76 or 77 in 10 minutes. And that's HDB, hot dog and bun. Well, I mean, that is something to consider. Now, just to finish on, um, your top tip is to achieve the most you can for others. You have to put yourself in position to fire on all cylinders. How how do you do that for yourself? Well, you know, self-motivation, I think, is is a gift. That doesn't mean, especially in this time, when all of us have been sort of, you know, held up by our ankles and shaken upside down, that doesn't mean that that it's not difficult on some days. Um, but I think a very big part of my job with our team internally and all of our friends and partners externally, it's a little bit like, you know, being the manager of the football club. And, you know, if you think about what separates, you know, the top of the of the you know Premier League and you know Liverpool this year from the bottom athletically there's not a huge difference you know from the players at the top you know who will make the top four in the Champions League and the bottom three that have been relegated but what does matter is the manager and the mental mm. part of the yeah, game the attitude 
So, uh, so I think there was a great uh, baseball player, Yogi Berra, who played for the Yankees many years ago. He's long gone. He had a wonderful way with words. And one of his expressions was 90% of the game is 50% mental. Mm. So I, I think, you know, you got to work on that every day and you've got to keep yourself, you know, going. Otherwise, you're no good to anybody else. Matt, thank you very much. We're going to have to leave it there because that's sadly all we have time for. And a big thank you there to the king of creativity, the lord of the Big Apple, Matt Schechner. It's been a 100% showstopper, a Broadway hit in the making. And for more stories from the stage of life, join me next time on Changemakers.